Um, I'm, I'm blessed to be here and blessed to be able to open the word with you. Uh, if you would, I'm going to ask you to do something. If you would, stand with me and let's open up God's word to Colossians chapter 2. And we're going to read verses 8 and 9. Let's open up God's holy, inspired, perfect, infallible word together. Let's let the riches of this word speak to our heart. Colossians chapter 2, verses 8 through 9. Be careful that no one takes you captive through philosophy and empty deceit based on human tradition, based on the elements of the world rather than Christ. For the entire fullness of God's nature dwells bodily in Christ. Let's pray. Father, we come before you to open up your word. Please, please. Let Christ be shown. Let his glory speak to our hearts. And let your word pierce us. Let it lift us up. Let it strengthen us so that we can defend the next generation. And we can defend our hearts. We can defend our souls against the enemy. Lord, I pray that we stand on the gospel. That we lean on the gospel. And that your word brings us to a higher view of worship of you. In your holy name we pray. Amen. You may be seated. Well, One thing you may have noticed in reading that epistle that Paul wrote to the Colossian church. Uh, one thing you may notice is that he has an urge and a burning desire for the people in that church to stand on truth. To not be deceived by the world. To not let philosophies Take them captive. And you see that echoed throughout the entire, uh, really, Bible, but especially in the New Testament. It was a dominant theme in the early church. The false teachings that would go around in the church, the attacks on the deity of Jesus. In Ephesians chapter 5, verses 5 through 6, Paul says this, Let no one deceive you with empty arguments, for God's wrath is coming on the disobedient, because of these things. First Timothy chapter 6, verse 20. Timothy, guard what has been entrusted to you, avoiding irrelevant and empty speech and contradictions for what is falsely called knowledge. And even Jesus himself, in Matthew 24, in the Olivet Discourse, which is a teaching that Jesus gave on the end times. And he says this in Matthew 24, verse 24, for false messiahs and false prophets will arise perform great signs and wonders to lead astray, if possible, even the elect or the people of God, the people who have believed in God. So it's pretty clear that the writers of the, of the Bible want to make you, to, to encourage you to stand on the truth, to stand on God's objective, holy Word And the, the, the thing that we see and we've seen throughout this series that we've went through is that the enemy wants to obfuscate truth. The enemy wants to blur the truth, twist the truth, deceive by sh uh, shaping the truth in a way that brings God down and brings man up. Pastor Frank told us about in the garden of the fall with Adam and Eve, how Satan used God's commands and twisted them to say, did God really say you shouldn't eat from this tree? And what was the desire? To be like God himself. And we even see Satan do it again in the temptation. 
Matthew chapter 4. Jesus spends 40 days in the wilderness. Spirit led him there to overcome the temptations of the devil. And Satan even quoted Psalm 91 and quoted it out of context. And of course, our Lord did not bat an eyelash and stood up to the temptations. So as Christians, as believers of God, as believers in Christ, what is truth to us? What is truth to us? Well, the book of Romans, Paul tells us that every man knows the truth. Everyone intuitively knows of God. It says that the heavens declare his glory. It says that we can look outside and see the sun, the trees, the birds, puppies, kittens, people, cars, everything. Everything declares his glory. I want you to look at your hands. I want you to think about your body, the oxygen that pumps through your lungs, the code of your life, the DNA that is the book of your life. This did not form from nothing. You were built with moral standards intuitively written on your heart. This all points to the divine creator who is outside of time, who is in the heavens, who has knowledge of all things and designed this world for his glory and for our good. And it's infected by sin because of our disobedience. So with that knowledge known, with knowing that this holy God is in the heavens currently reigning, we see the Bible as his objective, revealed word to the world. This Bible is not just a rule book. It's not filled with just motivational quotes, although there are very inspiring scriptures. It is God's revealed knowledge from eternity because he has all knowledge because he created life. 2 Timothy chapter 3, verse 16 says, All scripture... Old Testament, New Testament, all Scripture is inspired by God and is profitable for teaching, rebuking, correcting, for training in righteousness. Second Peter chapter 20, verse 21, verse 20 and 21 says, Above all this, you know, no prophecy of Scripture comes from the prophet's own interpretation because no prophecy ever came by the will of man. Instead, men spoke from God as they were carried along by the Holy Spirit. So not one letter of Scripture was based on a man's idea or a man's philosophy. Not one page originated from the human mind, but rather from the mind of a holy and righteous God who made all things. You may see the characteristics of the writer. John, for example, wanted to show the deity of Christ. So in his gospel, you see the God-man Christ himself. In the book of Matthew, you see the gospel pointed as the Jewish Messiah. So Christ fulfilling the prophecy that the Jewish Messiah would come from the line of David. And so you see these writers' characteristics in their, in their, um, in their writings, but every ounce of the knowledge originated from God himself. So we have this truth we have this objective, holy truth that we can stand on, that we can trust for every aspect of our life. Now, why does it come under attack? If it's objective, if it's from God, why does it come under attack? Well, we could simply trace it back to one thing, idolatry. 
Idolatry, creating a God in your own image or wanting what the heart desires rather than the will of God. We can trace this all the way back to the beginnings of Satan. When he first rebelled against God in the heavens, when he took many angels with him, forming demons, and then brought about the deception of Adam and Eve, this plunged the entire human race into sin and stemmed from the desire of what the human race wanted to do rather than live in the, in the bounds of the triune God's will. Think about the Pharisees. I mean, they witnessed Jesus do miracles. They witnessed him do the things that he did, yet they did not want to accept him as the Messiah. They even had Isaiah 53, which clearly in the Old Testament pointed to Jesus, pointed to his coming, and he was there in front of them. And yet they still rejected him. Why? They didn't want to give up their status. They didn't want to give up to that Messiah. Think of Judas. Judas spent an ample amount of time in Jesus' ministry. He watched him do the signs and wonders. He heard the great teachings. And yet he traded all that away for silver. He betrayed the Lord God for silver, thus causing him to perish. So whether it be throughout the history of the scriptures, seeing what kind of attacks the truth has had on it, or whether it be through our modern history, we see truth being under attack, whether it be the theory of Darwinian evolution, which would deny God's work in creation, which would say that we were not created by God, but rather evolved from different species, or the Big Bang Theory, which would say that the universe was formed by condensed matter that was packed together, that got heated in what's called a singularity, and then boom, it exploded, and everything came here, thus denying God's work in creation. And Christians have always dealt with these things. Christians have always dealt with the truth being attacked. But praise be to God, he has raised up men throughout history, and by his word, to give objections to these things, to help the Christian walk through these things and provide answers to these things. In fact, this is a biblical command. 1 Peter chapter 3, verses 15 through 16. Peter says this, But in your hearts regard Christ as Lord, holy, ready at any time, any time to give a defense to anyone who asks for a reason that the hope is in you. Yet do this with gentleness and reverence, keeping a clear conscience, so that you are accused of those who are good in the conduct of Christ will be put to shame. And this is what happened. God has raised up many men who have edified the church through apologetics, through defenses for the existence of God, for the answers of all the theories and things that have come about that have stood against his word. But look, church, I could stand here all morning. And I could spend all the time we have going through apologetical arguments, going through how it's scientifically impossible that nothing created everything. You look at this building and you understand that there was a builder because it's standing. So you can look at this life and see the complexity of it and understand that there has to be an intelligent creator. Or we could talk about how Darwin's evolution, there's no fossil records that show a change from a kind to another kind. A cat to a dog, a fish to a human, as it's claimed. We can look at that and see that there's no fossil records indicating that. We could spend all morning doing those things, and they would probably be very helpful. 
But when it comes to the attack on truth, it doesn't go, it doesn't stay at the debate table. It is a, a war in the heart. Ray Comfort, one of the great evangelists and apologists, says this, that if it's merely a good argument that causes you to be a Christian, it's only going to take an even better argument to talk you out of it. This is a spiritual war. It's spiritual in the heart. Our hearts are deceitful. We need the Spirit of God. John 3, what's it say? What Jesus say? Truly I tell you, unless someone is born again, born again, he can't see the kingdom of God. When you hear that gospel call, when you hear the work, what Christ did to die on the cross for your disobedience to God, he took that punishment from on the cross and then he died and rose from the dead. And by repentance and faith, you have the gift of life. When you hear that call, that is what we need. Not an intellectual, not just simply an intellectual understanding of the gospel, but a change in the heart. Luke chapter 6, 40, verse 45 says, the good per- Jesus said, the good person out of the good treasure of his heart produces good. And the evil person out of the evil treasure produces evil. For out of the abundance of the heart, his mouth speaks. It's all about the state of the heart when it comes to these spiritual warfares that we deal with, when the attacks of truth, it all begins at our heart. Our heart has to be cleansed by the word of God and the power of the gospel. So we've highlighted Old Testament, New Testament attacks have had truth. The, the church has had heretical teachings going out through the church that they've had to deal with in church history. And even the modern philosophies such as Big Bang and evolution we've seen as attacks on God's word and truth. So the question we are going to address today, how is the enemy influencing the next generation that's coming up today? How is the enemy causing us in this next generation, these next generation of believers, what is the enemy doing to try and twist the truth, to try and cause them to fall into a state of idolatry, to do what they want to do rather than live within God's will? And really, it's true for anybody. It's true for anybody in this day and age. But we are now in a movement that seems to be at somewhat of an intersection. It seems that the affairs of culture are going one way, And God's word is coming another way, and they're meeting, they're clashing together. So what's happening now in some circles is the word of God is being bent to adapt to the culture rather than the Bible being the filter of the culture. We are seeing rather than taking God's word and his truth and applying it and approaching culture from the objective truth, we find many young people are allowing culture to dictate their worldview. There's many churches that are falling into this trap, that are allowing their churches to let the culture influence how they view the Holy Scriptures. What's plaguing our young people today is the idea that truth is relative. The idea that truth is not objective. The idea that truth is what you want it to be. And that there's no relative or objective standards. You make your own truths. This is the lie 
that our young people are falling to today. If any of you have ever heard of Wretched Radio, it's a Christian broadcast radio. They go to college campuses and they do witnessing on college campuses. And this is what they're finding in just about every single interview. That truth is not objective. That we can, but what your beliefs are your beliefs or my beliefs are my beliefs. And while that statement might be true, there's one true God. There's one true objective word that is right. And so if we're living under this lie and this deception that truth is only relative to how you want it to be, it opens the door to destruction. Elisa Childers, she is a Christian apologist. Uh, She has a YouTube channel and a podcast. She told this story about a church her and her husband once attended that uh, they were very somewhat new in their faith. They had just gotten married uh, and they joined this church. And they went to a Sunday school class, and the class was about the fundamentals of the Christian faith, the core basic beliefs. And the man teaching the class actually picked and chosen what parts of that class he wanted to believe. So think about atonement. Think about Christ as God and man. Think about God as creator. He picked and chosen which ones he wanted to agree with and disagree with, rather than letting the word stand and speak. And so this troubled her. And so she went about doing research, went about forming her own apologetics and studying apologetics and diving into that. But what happened in that classroom points back to a movement that we just kind of described, but a label that's being slapped on it is the progressive Christian movement. This movement is built on what the heart wants rather than what the Word of God says. The result of it is picking scriptures that will apply to truth that's relevant to the individual. So in other words, new perspectives on Paul. Okay, Paul preached about the righteousness of God. Paul preached about the will of God. And there were times when Paul would address issues such as homosexuality uh, and, and things of that nature. And so what, what this progressive movement is saying now is saying that Paul was only, Paul, James, and the other apostles, they were only dealing with what they had to deal with in culture of that day. So if they were to come here, they would understand culture's different, and so those things wouldn't apply today. That's what this movement is saying. The movement is saying that God is progressing, and that God is understanding culture. Folks, there's a huge problem with that. Turn with me to Hebrews 1. Writer of Hebrews, who we don't know exactly who it is, we would have, most people affirm it was Paul, but he says this, very first chapter, verse 1 through 3. Long ago, God spoke to the fathers and the prophets at different times and in different ways, but in these last days, he has spoken to us by his Son, God has appointed him heir of all things and made the universe through him. The Son, Jesus, is the radiance of God's glory and the exact expression of his nature, sustaining all things by his powerful word. After making purification for sins, he sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high. What you see here is Paul describing the characteristics and the deity of Jesus. He was appointed the heir of all things. So this world belongs to him. 
And he was not, Jesus was not just a bystander in creation. He was not on the sidelines watching the Father and the Spirit making these things. He wasn't just standing there in awe, amazed by what he saw. No, he was instrumental in every aspect of creation. There's not one atom or or particle in this world that is outside of Jesus Christ. He is the reigner of all things. And it says the sun, him, is the radiance of God's glory. You think about the sun now, right? If it were a few months earlier, somebody as pale as me goes out there and lays down in the parking lot for a few hours, you're going to know it. Because I would have felt that sun's radiance coming off of me, coming off the sun hitting me. Christ is the radiance of God's glory. He is the walking Ten Commandments. He is the walking law of God. He is perfect and holy in every way, and he walked on this earth. And so Paul spends time, we're assuming Paul, spends time in the introduction of this book of the Hebrews to lay down who Christ is, how these powerful, majestic Uh, deity of Christ and how he knows all things, created all things. And if this holy son of God affirms the scriptures as he does throughout the New Testament, we look at Christ and his immutability, meaning that he does not change, meaning that God does not, is not gaining new knowledge. God has the knowledge There's nothing about this word that changes. It doesn't progress. We stand on it because it's truth from eternity. And so we can't fall into these lies that the Bible is progressing with culture. We take culture and we filter it through the eternal and objective standard of the word of God. Dr. Michael Kruger a professor at a Reformed Theological Seminary makes two watermark points about this progressive Christian theology. The first is how the movement views Jesus. Listen to his quote. They believe that Jesus isn't so much the divine Son of God, but rather just a moral example for us to follow. It seems like we just read something quite opposite, doesn't it? Jesus is more of a big brother to them that sets a pattern that will walk in his, that we can walk in his footsteps. This is a clear denial of Christ and his deity. The second point Dr. Kruger makes is that if you don't have any sort of sense of Jesus as someone to be worshipped, then he's just someone to be emulated. So the highest goal of the Christian life for this progressive, progressive Christian theology is that you just be, have to be a good person. This is a contradiction to the fact that we are sinners in front of a holy and righteous God. And it suggests that we can earn our salvation, that we can just be good enough and that we can just emulate Christ. We don't need his atonement is what this theology is saying. We don't need for him to step in the place of our sin. We can just obtain it with our own righteousness. It's foolish compared to the scriptures. And it's dangerous compared to the scriptures. Another important distinction we should make is we can make about this new theological movement is that it's denial, typical denial of substitutionary atonement. Meaning, it's a biblical teaching that Christ's death on the cross was an acceptable sacrifice for the repentant sinner. So that Jesus' death on the cross 
was enough to pay for the sins and the punishment that falls on the sinner by repentance and faith. That's what substitutionary atonement says. It steps in for your punishments, what Christ did. But in these progressive leaders, Christian leaders and influencers, usually deny this very doctrine. They make the assertion that the Father requiring Jesus' death on the cross is a form of cosmic child abuse. That's what they say. And that it's not a characteristic of the Father. In fact, one prominent pastor, Steve Chalk, who is a progressive leader in the UK evangelical circles, his charge against the atonement is this, and listen to this quote. If God needs to pay the price of our debt, does he really forgive us of all? If he owed you 100 pounds, dollars over here, if he owed you $100 to someone and they refuse to release until someone else pays it, in what sense did they forgive you at all? So what he's saying is, if he's not allowing you to pay it, and he's looking for somebody else to pay it, how is that forgiveness? Well, the problem with this theology is it assumes that God is not allowing us to pay our debt. The problem that you and I have is not that we're not allowed to pay our sin debt. It's that we are not able to pay our sin debt. What does it take without the righteousness of Christ to enter the heavens? It takes to be just as God is. Holy, righteous, and perfect. There's no one in here that is that. There's no one in this world who is that. There was only one who accomplished that. And that's Jesus. And in fact, Ecclesiastes chapter 7 verse 20 tells us, There is not a righteous man on the earth that does good and does not sin. It's flawed and unbiblical to think that God does not allow us to pay our sin debt. The issue isn't that we're not allowed. The issue is that we are unable. We can't obtain the the salvation without Jesus. Apart from Jesus, we cannot fulfill the debt that we've earned because of our sin. We need that righteous perfect Savior who came to the earth out of a mercy and love for sinners, we need him to step into our place. We need him to substitute for the atonement of our sins. Turn with me to Romans chapter 3, please. Romans chapter 3, verses 23 through 26 says this, For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. They are justified, so there's our problem, All have sinned. Everybody has the same problem. Everybody has transgressed God. Okay? Verse 24. Excuse me, let's finish that verse. All fall short to the glory of God. They are justified freely by his grace through redemption that is in Jesus Christ. God presented him as an atoning sacrifice in his blood revealed through faith to demonstrate his righteousness because his restraint passed over sins previously committed. God presented him to demonstrate his righteousness at a present time so that he would be declared righteous to the one who has faith in Jesus. So Christ is presented as that perfect sacrifice. We are justified before God even in our sin because Jesus lived the life none of us can live. And so when we, when we repent and believe in him and we are adopted into that family of God, we are transformed by God, born again, we can stand before God 
in our sin, but yet God will see us as innocent because Christ's righteousness is imputed or given to us because he atoned for our sin. And we didn't earn it, he did it all. He atoned and did the work that we could not do. So when we deny this atoning work of Christ, or when culture denies the atoning work of Christ, it takes the weight off of our sin. You have to remember, sin is a transgression of the law of God. And sin is a transgression of a holy, perfect, and righteous God. And therefore, when we deny that Christ has to atone for our sin, we see the weight and the judgment and the wrath of God. There's nothing to be feared. And this is dangerous theology, especially for this next generation coming up. Because what this does now is this can open up the door for affirmation of the culture rather than the word of God. We see that the church now can, adopting this theology, will affirm sin and allow it, in the, allow it in the family of God. This is why we see our young people feeling the pressure of what culture saying about transgenderism, about homosexuality, about abortion. When we, let, when we take the weight of sin off, we find that we can call in or crumble into the culture. And this is what this progressive movement is doing to our young people. We know that the word of God is holy, righteous, true, and eternal. Now as Christians, do we cast out, do we hate people who, did, who, who, would, who would agree and affirm those sinful things that the Bible clearly lays out? Do we approach them with hate? No, Peter just told us. We approach with gentleness. We approach with truth. We approach from the objective standard of God. And so what we have got to do for our next generation, we have to build them up on the objective truth of a holy and righteous God who even in our sin sent his son to pay our price so that we can be reconciled to him forever. But even in the culture of today, we have to take God's holy word and filter it through the culture. The culture cannot dictate where we stand on God's eternal and objective truth. So I have four things for you, four ways that we can fight this war, that we can fight the enemy, obfuscating truth and attacking our next generation. Four points that I will close with. Number one, we have to get the gospel correct. We can't distort the gospel into something it's not. We can't distort the gospel into taking, making a primary objective of things that it's not. Think about when Jesus rode in. They threw the, the palm branches on the ground. They expected him to come be the ruler and king. They expected him to rule over the Romans and rule over the earth and be the Jewish king on the present earth. That's not what he came to do. He came to die and atone for the work, for the sins of those who would repent and believe. Listen to what Paul says about how serious it is that we get the gospel correct. Galatians chapter 1 verse 8. But even if we or an angel from heaven should preach to you a gospel contrary to what we have preached to you, a curse be on him. 
He says, let him be a curse. The gospel has to be correct. It has to get to our people the correct biblical gospel that we are justified by faith, not of works. Not of works. It's by Christ and Christ alone. The gospel is the power that unites sinners to Jesus. The sinner sees their sin, dies to themselves. Hear me. Dies to themselves. It means that they become in unity with Jesus. As Paul writes in Romans, that their old life has died, just like Jesus died. Their old life is buried, just like Christ was buried. And they have risen to a new life that desires the things of God and stands on his truth. That's the gospel we've got to get and continue to preach to our young people. Colossians chapter 3, verses 3 through 4. For you died and your life is hidden with Christ in God. When Christ is your life, appears, then you will also appear with him in glory. Again, we don't earn it. There's nothing good about us that can earn it. It's Christ's righteousness imputed. Our lives are hidden in, the, in, the Christ, in Christ from the judgment of God. And number two, we have to warn of the wrath to come. We have to call the next generation or the generation coming up. To be quite honest with you, the current generation, we have to call ourselves to holiness. Jonathan Edwards was a preacher, a Puritan preacher in the 17th century who was a catalyst for the Great Awakening movement. This movement was to convict the English colonies for their secularism. In other words, these colonies had gotten away from the truths of Scripture and they were all about what was going on in the culture and the secular ideas that were happening that day. Sound familiar? Jonathan Edwards was a man who stood on truth. And he preached a sermon, a famous sermon that he preached multiple times called Sinners in the Hands of an Angry God. Listen to a quote from this sermon. The God that holds you over the pit of hell, much as the one who holds a spider of a loathsome insect of fire, abhors and it has dreadfully provoked his wrath towards you burns, and he looks upon you at 10,000 times so admirable in his eyes at the most hateful and venomous serpent in ours. Edward's attempt in here was to show people that our sin has incurred the wrath of God. And you may say to yourself, how could a loving and holy God send people to hell? For God to be loving, holy, perfect, and righteous, he has to judge sin. The judge can't let the criminal just go because he felt like it. He has to give a just punishment. And so Jonathan Edwards' goal here was to warn about the wrath to come for sin. That a judgment was coming for all sin. But the question is, Who's taking the punishment? Because God didn't just leave you in your state. He sent his son to atone and reconcile you to God. He sent his son so that that wrath does not have to fall upon you. He sent his son to bring the wrath upon him in your place. And that's what Jonathan Edwards preached 
He preached this message multiple times. In fact, there is a story that says they had to stop one of the sermons because of all the weeping that was going on in the, in the, in the pews. They had to stop. They had to stop and go to prayer. We have to call our generation to holiness. We have to call our generation to live for God's will. Number three, we have to build our young people up in their faith. Hebrews chapter 1, excuse me, chapter 11. It defines what faith is and hope. And there's a difference in worldly faith and hope. My wife has faith and hope that I will take that trash out. But she probably shouldn't count on it because I'm very forgetful. That's a worldly faith and hope. I hope something comes through. I hope I get this job. I'm not 100% sure on it, but I hope and I have faith that it'll happen. The Bible describes faith and hope as a surefire thing. My translation, which I forgot to mention is CSB. Now faith is, now faith is the reality of what is hoped for and the proof of what is not seen. I like the ESV version a little bit better. Now faith is the assurance of things hoped for and the conviction of things not seen. Listen to these two words, assurance and conviction. If I'm assured of something, it's going to happen. If we are assured, we can bet on it. And a conviction is something that we can stand on and believe in and are changed by. This is what the Bible tells us faith is. Faith is the assurance of what is hoped for. It is the assurance that we can look to Jesus in his victory. The assurance that he is reigning in heaven right now on his throne. That he will slay evil and conquer death once and for all at the last judgment. And that you have assurance in your salvation by repentance and faith. And that conviction is for you to build your life on that. That's what the Bible describes as assurance and conviction. The thing that our young people are facing is something called deconstruction. If you would, turn to Matthew 13. And while you're turning there, I'll explain what I mean by that. This term is probably not found in Scripture, but it's a term that has been coined because of what's happening to young people. They are being, their faith is being poked at, it's being questioned by universities. It's being questioned by secular ideas. It's being questioned. And so what's happening is young people are doing what's called deconstructing from their faith. You can actually go on YouTube and find some pretty former popular Christian people who have deconstructed from their faith because of worldly ideologies. I want to read to you that Scripture has an, an answer for that. Parable of the Sower. Matthew 18, or excuse me, Matthew 13, starting in verse 18. It may not be up there, so I apologize. So listen to the parable of the sower. When anyone hears the word about the kingdom and doesn't understand it, the evil one comes and snatches it away from the heart. So the one who has sown along the path is sown on rocky ground, and this is the one who hears the word, immediately receives it with joy, but has no root, and it's short-lived. And when distress or persecution comes because of the world, immediately he falls away. 
Now the one sown on the thorns is the one who hears the word, but the worries of this age and the deceitfulness of wealth choke the word away and it becomes unfruitful. But the one who is sown on good ground, this is the one who hears and understands the word and produces fruit that yields 160, some 130 times of what was sown. So Jesus tells a parable about a farmer scattering seed. There's three different types of soil. As you can see here, this one sown on rocky ground is the one who hears the word. So he hears the gospel, receives it with joy, but has no root. And is short-lived. Why? Because distress or persecution, because of the world, and falls away. They fall out of their faith because they had not the gospel as the root of their heart. Now the one who's sown among the thorns, this is the one who hears the word, but the worries of this age and the deceitfulness of wealth choke the word and it becomes unfruitful. So the cares of the world, the worries of the world, the lies of the culture that tells you what you need to do to be successful. And none of it has to do with the gospel. That's the person who hears that and bends to that and falls away. But the one sown on good ground, this is the one who hears the gospel, understands the word, and produces fruit. We have got to build the gospel up in our people to strengthen their faith. We've got to edify our next generation so that that seed falls on that good ground. And when they go and they face persecution or they face a testing of their faith or they find hard questions that they won't fall away. Doesn't it sound a lot like Hebrews 6? Hebrews 6 talks about the ones who fall away, the ones who tasted the gift, were enlightened by the Spirit, where it had this enlightening moment, but then fell away. So if we want to, first of all, we've got to pray for our generation, but we've got to build them up and make the gospel essential in our households, make the gospel essential in our youth groups, make the gospel essential in our ministries, which we, I think we do here. We make every effort to do. We have got to continue to make that faith in Christ, the assurance and the conviction that will not fold. The last thing, for you young people here today, really for everybody, you, I think this thing's about to fall, sorry. You can trust in the great high priest. Trust in the great high priest. Hebrews 4, chapter 15, says this. Young people, I want you to hear this. Therefore, Since we have such a great high priest who has passed through the heavens, Jesus, the Son of God, let us hold fast to our confession. For we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses. Let me say that again. We don't have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with your weakness. You don't have a high priest who was tempted in every way and yet did not give in to sin. Everyone in here, really, not just young people, will be tempted. You will feel the temptations of the enemy. We will feel the lies in our culture that tries to infect the word of God and distort our view of Christ. I just had a parent tell me in the lobby, her son faced it, praise be to God, he stood up to it. 
We will hear it. And we will feel that temptation, but we don't have a high priest who has not suffered that way. Jesus, when he came, truly God, truly man, faced the temptation of the devil. And he survived it for 40 days. And he stood up to the face of that devil. And in the Garden of Gethsemane, when his human nature felt the weight of what he was about to do on the cross, hear what I'm saying, his human nature... He trusted in God. He trusted in the Father. And he was able to go to the cross and do what he did. You understand what the priests were in the Old Testament. They would go to God, essentially go to God on behalf of the people. And so the people had to come to the priest to have their sins atoned for, to have access to God. But when Christ died on the cross, that veil tore Now, he sits as your high priest. You now have access to God because you have the perfect high priest in heaven interceding on your behalf. He's speaking on your behalf. He's stepping in on your behalf. So when you face these temptations of the world, when you feel the weight of the culture, when you feel your faith being attacked, Don't run to sin and don't run away from your faith. Run to the high priest who is sitting in his seat, interceding for you, suffering for you as he has suffered while he was on earth. He sympathizes in your weakness. You have a high priest to go to, and that is Christ. And he's there for you, currently reigning now. So I just want to close with this. The enemy will try in any way, shape, or form to obfuscate or change or blur the truth of God's word. And I pray that we will continue to build our young people, and really I should say our lives individually, on the gospel. Build on what is eternal. Build on what matters for eternity. Build on the work, the atoning work, and the high priest of Jesus Christ, who has knowledge of all things, who all things were created through, who stands and reigns now, and nothing is outside of him. Build on him. And when you face those temptations, just know that he is there interceding for you in heaven. And one day you'll meet him if you have repented and trusted him by faith. If you have not done that, I need you to know that you stand under God's wrath, but he has not left you there. He's offered Christ to atone for you. And the gift of eternal life is found by turning from your sins, which means repentance, turn from your sins, and trust him by faith. You have a free gift of salvation from God because of what Christ did. Build on the gospel. Love Christ and continue to be strong in your faith. Let's go to the Lord in prayer. Father, we come before you. We come before you in a world that has fallen. We come before you where ideologies and culture pokes and prods We know the enemy attempts to distort truth in this world. Lord, remind us who you are today. 
Remind us that you are in heaven reigning. Remind us that your word is objectively true from eternity. And it will stand forever. As the great hymn says, a mighty fortress is our God. A bulwark that never is failing. Lord, remind us of that great truth. Let us walk out of here in great obedience to you. Let us turn from our sins, the sins that entangle us, that slow us from our race. Lord, let us lean on who your son is, Jesus. Let us look at his atoning work on the cross. Let us stand on your word. And don't let the culture of this today affect it. No matter what our administration may say, no matter what may come, no matter what pressures our young people face in secular universities and anything that they're dealing with, remind them that there's a great high priest who has suffered, who has won, and is now interceding on their behalf. Let every one of us build on that truth of the gospel, and let us love you and obey you. In your name we pray, amen. I hope you all have a wonderful week. Uh, Just know we are all here for you. We love you. If you're new here this morning, come see us at Connection Point. We'll have a free gift for you. Thank you so much.